Children, please be dismissed now for Children's Church. Please join with me in prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. At the end of Luke's Gospel, Jesus makes himself known to two disciples while they break bread together in Emmaus, at which point he vanishes from their sight. Then, as the disciples gather in Jerusalem to share what has happened in Emmaus, Jesus appears in their midst, wishing them peace. The Gospel concludes with Jesus' final words to his followers and his ascension into heaven. The Gospel according to Luke, the 24th chapter, verses 44 to 53. Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and see, I am sending upon you what my Father has promised, so stay here in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high." Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he withdrew from them and was carried into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple, blessing God. The word of the Lord. Jesus' ascension into heaven is traditionally a time when the church remembers and celebrates Christ's lordship, Jesus' rule over all earthly powers. It's a celebration that God, in the words of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, has raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named not only in this age, but also in the age to come. The resurrected Christ's departure from his followers at the end of Luke's gospel to sit at God's right hand sets the stage for Luke's sequel of Acts, with Jesus' disciples sent out into mission, spurred by the confidence that the crucified and resurrected Jesus stands above all rule and authority, including above the imperial authority of Rome. From Jerusalem, the apostles go out to join God's mission under God's rule. Paul traveling multiple times around the Mediterranean to proclaim even in the heart of imperial power that Jesus is above every name that is named. Mark taking the good news to Egypt, and Thomas, according to Syrian Orthodox tradition, going to India to tell of what God has done in Jesus. The Feast of the Ascension lends itself to triumphal sermons. 
The church's ascension hymns certainly strike a triumphant note. Sing we triumphant hymns. Rejoice, the Lord is King. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Speaking for myself, however, Paul's claim that Jesus is now far above all rule and authority and power and dominion can sometimes feel less like assurance of God's rule over the powers of sin, death, and destruction, and more like absence or abandonment. The sense of God's absence felt particularly acute to me earlier this year in February when I was visiting Mennonite Central Committee partners um, and disaster response projects in war-torn Syria. On the third day of our visit, I was asked to sit with a group of women in the village of Feiruza on the outskirts of Homs in central west Syria. These women receive monthly cash allowances from MCC through the Syrian Orthodox Church. Some were Christians, some were Muslims. They spoke quickly and with an intense desperation that someone would relay their stories to people who might make a difference. My dormant Arabic skills were taxed to the limit as these women shared about how husbands, uncles, or sons had been kidnapped, never to be seen again, with no corpse to bury, no finality of a funeral. There can be no peace in Syria until there is truth and justice for families whose loved ones have been kidnapped, one woman stressed, imploring me to communicate that back to politicians in the United States. I fumbled for something that might resemble a coherent response. Finally, another woman took pity on me and interrupted my hopelessly inadequate words, saying, what you must understand is that every family in Syria has stories like these. The sights of destruction and the stories of death, kidnapping, and displacement kept accumulating during our week in Syria as we traveled from Homs to Hama to Aleppo to Damascus. The scale of the devastation in Syria is hard to process intellectually, let alone emotionally. Over half of Syria's pre-war population has been uprooted, with over 11 million people ending up either as refugees outside of Syria or as displaced persons within the country. Inside Syria, some families have been displaced two, three, even four times by ongoing fighting. More than two-thirds of the 18 million people now living in Syria rely on humanitarian assistance to survive. Over six million Syrians face acute food insecurity. Less than half of Syria's hospitals and clinics are fully functional, while a third of all schools have been damaged or destroyed. This torrent of grim statistics felt unrelenting, and what we saw and heard gave disturbing reality to these numbers. In Homs, we drove by shelled out and destroyed apartment buildings for kilometer after kilometer. Entire sections of the city turned into mute ghost towns. We walked through the badly damaged Christian neighborhood of Wadi Asayah in Homs, looking up at the remnants of a family's kitchen, the cupboard still clinging to the ruined walls. In the village of Deratiyah, 
in the Kalamun Valley, we visited with families who had fled to the village from across Syria, seeking safety. One woman, whom I will call Amina, shared how she had fled from Raqqa with her six children after Islamic State forces had taken over the city, with which the self-proclaimed Islamic State declared to be the capital of its caliphate. Her oldest son, an 11-year-old boy, is the family's only source of income, having dropped out of school and working odd jobs to provide for his mother and his younger siblings. The family receives a monthly food parcel from MCC through the village's Islamic Relief Committee. Asked if she hoped one day to return to her native city of Raqqa, the mother replied with resignation, there is nothing for me there. Near Deratiya lies the Christian village of Sadad. It was in Sadad that I heard a Syrian Orthodox story that became a touchstone for me throughout my time in Syria, a story I kept coming back to as I searched for signs of God's rule within a landscape of devastation. Sadad is home to the Margirgis, or St. George, church. Founded in the third century, the church is home to stunning 18th century murals. For the most part, I was able to figure out what the various parts of the murals represented, but one image stumped me. I turned to the local priest to ask who these figures were, and he proceeded to tell me the story of the zinar, or the belt. The story goes like this. Jesus' mother, Mary, had passed away in Jerusalem. Most of the disciples were in Jerusalem and present for the burial. Thomas, however, was in India, proclaiming the gospel when he heard the news. Thomas headed as quickly as possible to Jerusalem, fearing that he would miss the burial. As he approached Jerusalem, distraught that he had missed saying farewell to Mary, he encountered Mary in the air, accompanied by chariots and horses, being assumed into heaven. A little theological tangent. Orthodox churches hold to the doctrine of Mary's assumption, teaching that Mary was bodily taken or assumed into heaven following her death. Thomas cried out to Mary, begging her for a tangible sign that he could take to the other disciples as a proof that he had, in fact, encountered the Virgin Mother. In response, Mary gave him her zinar, or belt, as the desired sign. And Thomas continued on to Jerusalem, where he joyously shared his encounter with Mary, with the other disciples, showing the belt as proof. Since then, according to Syrian Orthodox tradition, the belt has been guarded in the Church of the Belt in Homs. Bishop Selwanus of Homs, pictured here on the right, hosted us in the church which had sustained damage from shelling during fighting between government and rebel forces a couple of years ago. For the Syrian Orthodox Church, its guardianship of the belt stands as a symbol of God's faithfulness to the church over nearly 2,000 years. For me, the story of the belt opened my eyes to the tangible signs of God's enduring rule in Syria. Over the course of my week in the country, I witnessed numerous ways that the Syrian churches continue two millennia of joining God's reconciling mission. 
Throughout Syria, God's rule is made manifest as churches continue to gather to worship and give thanks to God. The number of Christians in Aleppo may have fallen from 200,000 before the war to 30,000 today, with Syrian Christians joining Syrian Muslims and fleeing the country for safety. Yet the Sunday we worshipped at the Armenian Evangelical Church, the large sanctuary was full and 50 children presented their monthly program of praise songs. In Damascus, shockwaves from the Syrian government's bombardment of eastern Ruta were shaking the walls and windows of the Syrian Orthodox Patriarchate in the Bab Tuma neighborhood of the old city. But that did not prevent the Syrian Orthodox Patriarch from leading Lenten noon prayers, with the Patriarchate's priests continuing the church's century-long worship in Jesus' language of Aramaic. The war has brought out the worst in us, but also the best in us, the Patriarch told us. Acknowledging the church's dwindling numbers, the Patriarch nevertheless insisted that there is also little salt in food, and here we are, living as salt in this world. God's rule in Syria is made manifest in the embodied witness of those who protect the vulnerable. In Homs, Sister Valencia, a Catholic nun who directs a Presbyterian home for the elderly, told of how the home had found itself between the Syrian army and rebel forces with shells lobbed over the home. Before the fighting began, when it became clear that the home for the elderly would be near the center of the fighting, Sister Valencia gathered the home's staff together. I have decided to stay with the home's residents who are unable to leave and have nowhere to go, she told her colleagues. She then gave the rest of the staff five minutes to decide whether to stay or leave, and all stayed. Throughout the ensuing weeks of the fighting, Sister Valencia and the home's janitor would head out during ceasefires to stock up on bread and other basic provisions for the home, all too aware that snipers routinely violated ceasefires. In Damascus, meanwhile, Rima and Lena, leaders of the Larsh community for adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities, fretted about what would happen to the community's members. Would the community's caregivers choose to stay as shells regularly fell in the old city? Or would they understandably choose to flee? Lena and Rima gathered with the caregivers to tell them that there was no shame in leaving, that they should do what they feel, felt called to do. The response from the caregivers was unanimous. We will stay here until the end, every one of us. God's rule in Syria is revealed in Syrians reaching out beyond their communities to care for their neighbors, regardless of religion, ethnicity, family connections, or other differences. So, for example, in the primarily Christian village of Kfarbu, we met two displaced neighbors who cared for each other and who testified to the church's outreach beyond itself. Jamal, the Muslim man on the right in this photo, is from the Syrian city of Raqqa. In the basement of Kfarbu's Greek Orthodox Church, Jamal told his story while standing next to his Christian friend and neighbor from Raqqa, Kamal. 
When Islamic State forces were approaching Raqqa, Jamal went to Kamal with the urgent plea that they both gather their families and flee for safety. Together, Jamal, Kamal, and their families made their way to Kafarbu, where over the course of the war, the village's 12,000 residents have opened their homes to Christian and Muslim Syrians displaced by the fighting. In Kafarbu, MCC has supported the churches in distributing regular food packages to the many displaced families in the village. Jamal underscored, this is a good village where the people give without discrimination between Christians and Muslims. In Aleppo, meanwhile, the Presbyterian Church distributes monthly cash allowances along with MCC comforters and relief buckets to displace Syrians with some uprooted families, including Syrian Muslim families, housed in church buildings. This is not only our congregation's ministry, but rather the ministry of the global church, said the Reverend Ibrahim Nasser, a Presbyterian pastor. When we receive these comforters, he continued, we can not only feel their warmth, but we feel the prayers sent with the blankets. Many of the Presbyterian congregation's own members have been displaced multiple times, Nasser noted, and the congregation faced a crisis six years ago in 2012 when militants blew up the congregation's sanctuary. After years of worshiping in an apartment building, the congregation eventually decided to rebuild. Asked why he had stayed in Aleppo during the worst of the fighting, as rebels almost completely encircled the city, Reverend Nasser responded, faith makes you do crazy things. In Homs, the Syrian Orthodox Church's outreach arm is called the Um Ezenar Relief and Development Committee, or URDC. URDC takes its name from Mary, Um Ezenar, the mother of the belt. Most of URDC's volunteers are university students, like the three on the right pictured here. Sausan, the woman on the left, shared that her family had lost their home during the fighting in Homs, and now she felt called to reach out to other displaced families. The man on the right, Amir, told of the uncertainty he faces as he prepares to graduate. Should he stay in his homeland and face mandatory conscription? or flee the country like so many other Syrian youth. Yet while his future contains stark decisions, in the present he is dedicating himself to serving in Christ's name. In the lives of Sausan and Amir, of Sister Valencia and Reverend Ibrahim, of neighbors Jamal and Kamal, I saw tangible signs of God's rule in Syria, Paul's proclamation that the risen Jesus is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion calls us to see the devastated world from which God can at times feel all too starkly absent with new eyes to discern amidst the devastation the signs of God's rule that is greater and more profound than the power and might of death-dealing militaries and militias. The church in Syria has been discerning these signs now for nearly 2,000 years, going out to join God's reconciling mission. Through MCC, our congregation has accompanied the Syrian churches in this mission. 
In a sermon I gave on the first Sunday of Lent in Aleppo, I asked the Armenian Evangelical Congregation to pray for the church in the United States, that we might faithfully join in God's mission in, as the Syrian church has, its, has done in its context. After the service, person after person told me that they would keep our churches in their prayers. Let us keep the Syrian churches in our prayers, and together with the Syrian churches, let us pray that we might be granted the vision to see God's hidden rule amidst the powers of death and sin, the grace to be conformed to that rule, and the courage to go out to join God's reconciling mission. Amen.